Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And we have a lot to discuss tonight, Karen. Yeah, we've already talked about it quite a bit. <laughs> our, our online prep went a little bit longer than we expected. So do you want to give us an update on some of the topics we talked about in our last episode? Yes, um, but as I've mentioned, my update has updates. <laughs> so when we had last spoken with you, dear listener, we had talked a bit about kind of cis perspectives on trans experience and cancel culture and why that happens. And what's really concerning to me is the legislative attacks on trans healthcare. And so the way that this has been framed, I feel from the cis subjectivity perspective is that we are just asking questions about why doctors want to surgically remove uteruses from girls who hate their bodies. And that sounds pretty reasonable. However, that's not really what's occurring having a conversation about that and connecting it to this legislation is so beyond comparable. And so just a little bit about what's actually going on in these bills that are going up to state legislatures and that are all kind of popping up at the same time, which is generally a sign that there might be pressure groups involved in the writing of these. So What we know is 21 states have had lawmakers introduce bills that are specifically targeted at young transgender people, so transgender minors, uh, and are specifically about healthcare. So this is somewhat separate from the sports bills. But generally, what these bills are doing are making it a crime or cause for professional discipline, so uh, licensure removal, if a provider gives or delivers gender-affirming care to someone under the age of 18, even with the parent's approval. Some of these also include penalties for parents if the parents do approve. So uh, in Louisiana, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas, these bills contain penalties for family members. So you could be arrested if you support your trans child in their transness. In the three other states make it illegal for schools to provide information about children being transgender to families. In some states, it's it's not just schools, it's every state employee. I know in in Arkansas, this bill has passed. Uh, The governor vetoed it, and the legislature overrided that veto. And then three states are either additionally or separately, including insurance-related provisions. And so what I mean by that is not health insurance. What I mean is liability insurance for providers. And some of these things have criminal penalties, correct? Yes, most of them do. 
So we're not even talking about, for example, in the 90s and 2000s when we had like abstinence only sex education. If, it, if a teacher gave a student a condom or told them what a birth control pill was, the school could lose all federal funding. Now we're talking about if a health teacher answers a question about transgender identity or healthcare, they could go to prison. Yeah. So there's criminality just for providing healthcare information. And those were the, the bills that are related to schools and state employees. But for healthcare workers, these bills also are removing liability insurance for coverage of these procedures. So if you're providing therapy to a child who, say, grows their hair out and you say that that's acceptable for them, and then you are sued by any stakeholder in that child's family you would not have liability insurance around that. Or if something happened that was hair related, I don't know, but you would not have liability around that as a provider. Just ridiculous because most children experiment with their hair during puberty, cis or trans. Right. Well, and here's where I ended up going down a rabbit hole (laughs) around how do we define mental disorder? totally ended up near the end of my rabbit hole there. But this is something that came up in the classification discussions around gender dysphoria, which is how we classify the experiences that trans people have in a mental health context. And so dysphoria, meaning the opposite of, of euphoria, basically, if euphoria is feeling really great, dysphoria is feeling really terrible. And so gender dysphoria is a terrible gender feeling. Um, and so that's what is in the DSM. Um, and that's what you're treating on paper when you're putting your clinical code in this mental illness of feeling really bad about gender. So it's not the transness, it's the bad feelings. But anyway, what we ultimately do know about healthcare to people who are trans is what we know about most illnesses, biological or mental health based, if you're a dualist between the two of those, whether or not we know the biological basis of the illness what we know about is outcomes of treatment with the best treatments we have so far. And so those are what we could look at to say what is successful treatment and what is not successful treatment has less to do with what causes the illness right now and more to do with people's well-being after treatment. And so what we know helps for minors experiencing gender dysphoria transgender minors who are very unhappy about the way that their gender is presenting is affirming care. So specifically the kind of care that this legislation outlaws. So the way that we know that is, we know that therapy given to change their gender identity to be congruent with the sex assigned at birth tends not to work. Conversion therapy. Conversion therapy. But whatever you wanted to call it, 
If you received a trans child in your therapy room or your medical practice who is, you know, meeting all of the criteria based on your expert clinical opinion that I'm not going to dive into at all, (laughs) just trust your experts, figure out who your experts are and research your experts. But say that this is somebody who's expert who has diagnosed this child as having gender dysphoria in such a way that they are seeking medical intervention. We know the best outcomes come from using certain diagnostic algorithms and certain treatment algorithms, barring other illnesses where you potentially delay puberty. And then potentially provide hormone therapy and after the child is no longer a minor, surgeries. We know that that leads to better mental well-being. And so what do I mean when I say well-being? Lower levels of distress. (laughs) And what we also know is that in trying to change somebody's gender identity to be more normative, so trying to get a trans child to become a cis child, a cisgender child, as you call it, conversion therapy, I would probably call it the same. We know that that's not effective. So what we know is it leads to poor mental health outcomes in that it leads to exacerbated distress. We also know that it leads to people persisting into being transgender once they become of legal age to control their own health care. So it's, it's not effective. And, right. And it's, it's just rank hypocrisy because you have these people like Abigail Schreier, who we'll get into in a minute, who will say that YouTube and memes are turning cis kids trans, but then turn around and support conversion therapy. Like, They think that it can make you something that you're not, like it can trick you into thinking that you're trans when you're not. But then if you're trans, they think they can trick you back into thinking that you're cis. Like it it doesn't make any sense. It's like they're using conversion therapy to prove conversion therapy is wrong or something like that. It it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And the, the reason I bring her up is a tweet that she put out that just absolutely amazed me where she was talking about how horrible it was that we were teaching both gender ideology and critical race theory in schools. And I was like, oh, wow, big surprise. Transphobe turns out to be a racist too. I'm so shocked. And uh, we'll get into critical race theory later, but was not actually surprised. Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely a huge link between the concept of the gender binary and colonialist white supremacy and it's unsurprising that people who are opposed to both the expansion of western concepts of gender are also opposed to expansions of western concepts of race or just destruction like just complete revolution i'll say revolution to be positive like a a revolution in the way we think about gender if they're opposed to that they're going to be opposed to a revolution the way we think about race right but the funny thing is is none of this is a at all revolutionary. Like, I think 
I thought it was revolutionary in the 90s when I first learned about it. So everyone's just really behind on this revolution. It's like 30 years old now. And that was even still not revolutionary because we had Christine Jorgensen, like public figures, you know? That's what I was going to say. She was on like Dick Cavett in the 50s. Like people need to get over it. But regardless, it's not revolutionary in any way. Um, The mainstream lack of dehumanization of trans people is what's revolutionary. You know, (laughs) the fact that most people don't think it's funny to physically beat up trans people anymore, that's revolutionary. And I think that that's uh, sad, but also great. But just to kind of pull us back to where I I had been. (laughs) So we were talking, I was talking about health outcomes, right? And so, For health outcomes, it's not just me, your co-host, coffee pod member, Karen, telling you this. You know, I'm basing this assertion on the American Psychiatric Association's recommendations, which is in consensus with the American Psychological Association's recommendations which is in concordance with the American Academy of Pediatricians recommendations, which is in accordance with the Endocrine Society's clinical recommendations, which is in accordance of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry's recommendations, and so on and so forth. The world, uh, the WPATH, which is considered conservative at this point, recommendations include potential exceptions within their standards of care for individuals who might, based on expert diagnosis and prognosis uh, projections, might be a good fit. So basically, what I'm trying to say is, these are bills that are being put forth by legislators with a political agenda. And of course, every agenda related to legislation is a political agenda, so whatever. I'm using some fun words here, but it's not informed by healthcare. It's kind of informed by a moral panic that's going on. Can I ask you a Um, question? And mm -hmm. yeah, sure. So I think there's a caricature of what these healthcare providers actually do you know, I think that there are bad faith assumptions like about like, oh, like, you know, lots of kids play dress up or play gender, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean blah, blah, blah. But no one is saying that. Right. And, and can you just explain what insistent, consistent and persistent means? Right. So, you know, the, the insistent, consistent and persistent is the descriptor for children who continue to be trans into adulthood. These are the clinical indicators that medical intervention makes the most sense, of course, for anything that's only partially or non-reversible. Obviously, something that's fully reversible, you could make that call much more easily. So puberty blockers are fully reversible healthcare, meaning the second you stop taking puberty blockers, puberty occurs. So when people call puberty blockers irreversible, that's a political statement rather than a medical statement. And you'll hear some psychologists or psychiatrists who are interviewed use these terms. 
sometimes. Many of them come from a Jungian tradition of psychoanalysis, which is not a scientific psychology. So this is people who believe that people possess either a masculine spirit or a feminine spirit, anima or animus, uh, and that interfering with that spirit or that human essence is causing harm, medical harm. And so this is not a scientific view of gender. So there are people who would say that puberty blockers are irreversible. However, medically, they're classified as fully reversible because the second you stop taking them, they stop working and you develop in a normative fashion. So you don't need to be insistent, persistent, and consistent for puberty blockers because it's extremely low risk. That makes sense. Um, I just wanted to, to say that because I think there's a straw man idea of the, the way that these doctors are diagnosing children. There are criteria that they look for. They don't just, right. Um, so I wait, wait, I, just, I want to go back because I didn't yeah. answer your question at all. I think you did answer <laughs> I went too question. far down a detail. Okay. <laughs> so the, the idea that any tomboy or sissy is going to end up having their genitals surgically altered that boogeyman is like so far from what I was just talking about, <laughs> you know, so those are irreversible. Surgeries are irreversible. Cross gender, cross sex hormones are partially reversible. So there are certain aspects that will permanently change, such as the growth of facial hair for people who are on testosterone or vocal changes for people who are on testosterone or people who have testosterone in their bodies at the levels that most people have post-pubertally. So this also includes cisgender boys. Once cisgender boys go through a certain amount of puberty, they will forever grow facial hair unless they get electrolysis. That's irreversible. But there's a whole bunch of things that testosterone does that is also totally reversible. So testosterone would be a partially reversible treatment. That's only given to people who meet this insistent, consistent, and persistent. And so you see in a lot of Jesse Signal's work and a lot of these groups, what about desisters? People who desist as opposed to persist. So kids who say they're trans and then no longer say they're trans later in life. The experience is not one that I'm particularly able to speak to, desistance. But what we know about persistence is that trans youth that persist into trans adulthood tend to be children who are consistent. They don't go back and forth about their identity. Insistent, I need to change this. This must change. I will never be happy without it changing. And persistent, if there's a roadblock in their way, they will work around it. (laughs) And so Kids that are trans that meet these presentations, clinical presentations, those are the kids that you would want to start having a conversation around medical intervention for that is partially reversible and then eventually potentially fully reversible. Which is not to say that everyone who meets that criteria ends up being persistent. They may end up going through a puberty that doesn't match their eventual gender identity, much like most trans adults. (laughs) And if what happens to most trans adults is unacceptable, 
then no one should be allowed to go through puberty <laughs> until they are an adult. But that's never the argument. And so that's where I understand it as being logically inconsistent and potentially belying a political bias. <laughs> I'm in the question for you. And I, this just struck me right now as, as like a metaphor, a way to think about uh, puberty blockers because they're controversial because of transphobia. Is it a fair comparison to compare them to hormonal birth control in that hormonal birth control inhibits fertility by stopping ovulation? But when you stop taking those pills, you'll start ovulating again. So there's certain overlapping aspects. I would say because hormonal birth control is actually uh, estrogen and progesterone based, it's much more like actually giving hormones. <laughs> so giving puberty blockers are even less impactful than putting a child or a minor on hormonal birth control. And in fact, the people who are opposed to this kind of healthcare, first of all, they're opposed to anybody mentioning that you're allowed to be trans. They consider that affirming healthcare, that it could be healthy to be a trans person. So way beyond the realm of medical intervention, but when the wedge issue of medical intervention comes up, there's a huge conflating of what puberty blockers are and how they're used. And so hormonal birth control, if you have no problem with hormonal birth control and we're logically consistent in the kinds of medications you think are appropriate for minors, you should not have a problem with minors taking hormones, which are partially reversible. Puberty blockers should not even get on your radar as something to have an opinion on, you know, unless, you know, you don't think anyone is really trans or should be allowed to be trans or be trans and be allowed to have a body that matches their identity or their, their awareness of their own self. And, you know, Elizabeth, I have a question for you. Yes. How do you know you're a woman? So like the answer that I'm going to give you, I don't know if you're going to like. <laughs> I'm excited. So. Challenge me. I am a cis woman because I don't want to change my body. Interesting. I feel like when I listen to trans people, a lot of them say they're uncomfortable with their body and they want to change it to be perceived as another gender. I am comfortable being perceived as a woman. So that's hilarious to me. <laughs> you are correct. <laughs> so you define cis as not trans, but before you were aware of trans issues, did you think of yourself as a woman? You don't want to get canceled here, but um, there's a TikTok that starts out. I don't know if I'm non-binary or if I just don't think gender is real, right? So I remember like asking my mom when I was like in high school and I was like, I understand there's a stereotypical idea of what it means to be a man. I was like, where is that information on what it means to be a woman? And she just said something like, I don't know. I don't think that femininity is very important to me. I personally like getting dressed up and wearing makeup and dresses on special occasions, but I don't think that it's fun to be coquettish or play dumb to appease men. 
But did you know you were a woman? When I first took sociology or whatever it was where I understood the concept of othering, to be other, mm. I immediately identified that with my gender. Because I remember being a very small child and thinking about the idea of just a kid and also being a girl. And most of the time I knew when people said someone was a kid, they meant a boy. And they didn't necessarily mean a girl. And a girl was like a special type of kid. Androcentrism let you know you were a girl. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, it sounds like, like humble braggy. Like I figured this out very young. I understood the concept of othering before I had that language. How did you know you were a girl? How did you know you were other? I just guess because people told me I was and I didn't think I was a boy. Like, how do you I, prove to me that you're really a woman, though? No, I don't know. I don't think it's important. Like, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> like, I and I and I, I know what you said. So like, this is this is where I'm trying to go. <laughs> I don't ask these questions of other people, which is why I don't understand why other people like care so much. If someone tells me that they're cis or trans or non-binary or a man or a woman or or whatever, I'm not going to question it because it's not mine to question. Right. Also, so a few things that I'm going to joke about because yeah, I've, I've made my rhetorical point <laughs> is like you just kind of know you are in to make people kind of check off this checkpoint list. Like it's weird. Um, and so this dichotomy of true trans person, true transgender, true transsexual, classic transsexual taxonomy. Uh, comes from, you know, some really old literature that doesn't really make sense because it's like saying, but are you really a woman, Elizabeth? How do you know? You know, my answer just, is it doesn't matter. That's that's my point. So I'm glad that I've made it rhetorically. Okay, <laughs> and I know that you're already there. I'm not making it like, haha, Elizabeth, I got you. I know you're there. And so this the is the part is, where like, I don't I've, think you're getting canceled. I have, I have seen, no, I have seen people give similar responses to mine. And then the peanut gallery on Twitter will yell, well, that means that you're a non-binary. And the person will be go like, I don't know, whatever. So to answer the how do I know if I'm non-binary or I just don't think gender is real is you know, or you don't know, like if you don't know, then your statuses don't know. <laughs> and if you do know your statuses do know, that would be my answer. Like you actually just are what you, what you are. And so that would be my that illegal makes advice yes. in 21 States potentially. <laughs> And then I also wanted to say, I have been watching TikTok and I have followed this comedy account uh, about being a man and it's fucking hilarious. Um, it is some, it is some male comedian who gets on TikTok and says something insane some male comedian that gets on TikTok and says something absolutely wild and then goes, be a man. And that's it. And he just comes up with the most absurd things that somehow make sense because of toxic masculinity. I'm going to have to check it out. My favorite satirical deconstruction of masculinity is uh, still Bro Science Life, the YouTube channel, but... Um, that might be because I'm an old and I've only recently discovered TikTok and I've had to keep deleting it because it takes up too much time, like way yes, more than Twitter. Apologies 
okay. to any Zoomers. Yeah, what's the, what's the what's the handle of the TikToker? Pulling it up right now. Boston, be a man. Okay, I will I will check that out <laughs> the next time I put it on my phone. It it looks like Boston Bean Man, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, that's also a thing. The Boston you know, Beans. That's why I needed to clarify. Okay. Cool. Um, it's hilarious. I will never stop cracking up at it. I can't, it kills me. So that guy definitely knows he's a man because of random bullshit. <laughs> but anyway, my whole point being, you know, cis people question your gender more. <laughs> so I, can I say something about this that is somewhat satirical? No. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Go for it. Okay. So I feel like the time that I questioned my gender the most was during the episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend about the Santa Ana Wins, the singer who is the Santa Ana Wins. Like, I kind of wanted to be him. And I was rewatching it the other day, and I was like, I just want to be a trickster god or goddess either way. Like, that's really what it is. It's not the masculinity. It's like, but I would be really bad trickster god or trickster goddess because I think I just feel bad for people. And at the last minute, I wouldn't play the jokes on them, so... it's the chutzpah more than the gender i think that i was admiring trickster god gender personally i identify as an attack helicopter (laughs) they have one joke look i have never heard that joke before you made it up spontaneously yeah i think i'm gonna trademark that joke i'm gonna start a podcast attack helicopter coffee hour (laughs) Love it. For a quick palette You can find cleanser, us on patreon.com slash. Feminist coffee hour. But we this should month, totally set up a fake Patreon for that. I will. This month, big thank yous to all of our patrons <laughs> and to our new patron who subscribed last month. We predicted that we would get one and we did. It was fantastic. This month, instead of subscribing to our Patreon, if you haven't yet, you should donate to our fundraiser for the Which National Network of Abortion Funds. And you can check Why out our... Both? <laughs> or both, or both if you're if you're flush. Uh, https dot dot dash dash fund dot nnaf dot org slash fch twenty one for feminist coffee hour twenty twenty one. So fund dot nnaf dot org slash fch twenty one. And there's also a link on our Twitter at fem coffee pod. Uh, help us fund abortions for people who can't pay for them. It's I think the simplest way to support reproductive justice. So why is that important, Elizabeth? Because we have something called the Hyde Amendment, where in many states, Medicaid cannot pay for abortion care if a person needs it. And also because something like between 80 and 90% of counties do not have an abortion provider. And so often there is a long distance that must be traveled. Uh, People might be coming to New York from other states who need abortion care. They might need a place to stay. They might need money for gas or for a hotel childcare for their existing children, a large percentage of people who get abortions already have kids. And also because we're still in a coronavirus pandemic and many people have lost their jobs or their savings and can't afford to have another child or can't afford the healthcare that they need. And we've done previous episodes about this. You can go back and check them out or go to our page and give us money and there's resources there to learn more about the organization. Yeah, NNAF will also tell you why you should fund them. Mm-hmm. But you should fund them through our fundraising page. You absolutely should. So right before heading to patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour. That's 100% true. Um, I wanted to say, Karen, 
do you want to go next to uh, radius or critical race theory? I feel like we have a good segue into critical race theory sure. with white supremacy and transphobia transphobia connection. Sure. So speaking of Abigail Schreier, speaking of Abigail Schreier, Shire, I, have, I can't keep the transphobes names right. I don't care. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be corrected. You could correct me, and I will instantly forget. Mm-hmm. And and also, like just before anybody does add us, if you're mad, I did take the book out from the library and read it. So you can't tell me I'm not criticizing something I don't know. I hate read lots of conservative stuff. I go to 4chan, I go to the red pill, I read all kinds of bullshit just so I can, you know, argue against it. You're bulletproof. Oh my God. I'm not bulletproof. I just, I just need to know like what kind of bullshit people are saying, you know, and that's why I've been watching a lot of like the surfs TV. They are a like leftist Twitch stream and they spend all day watching like fucking Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson in the corner and your eyes are getting bigger. And like Lance is just this adorable Canadian who makes jokes and he makes it tolerable. And I always have a soft spot for Canadians who don't have Jordan Peterson. There are there are many of them. Uh, the Surfs, Thoughtsline, Mexican, famous Youngian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're. Uh, I'm not kidding. They're all youngins. <laughs> yeah, there's another one called We're in Hell. Uh, I will watch a left to leftist Canadian YouTube if they dunk on Jordan Peterson because uh, he's one thing you can't blame Americans on. I'm sorry. So uh, <laughs> eat it, Canadians, official <laughs> I'm enemies. I'm saying we love you, Canadians. Our podcast. For, we love you, Canadians, for cleaning up your own mess. So is is is, is really what I'm saying. Mm, fine. <laughs> So in 2019, the New York Times published a series called the 1619 Project about the 400 year anniversary of slavery in the United States. And this became many things. I think it was a podcast, it's a book, and it became a curriculum for use in schools for children to learn about American history and the history of race and racism in America. This was absolutely infuriating to the American right. And one of the last things he did in office, Donald Trump tried to ban critical race theory from being taught in American schools. And it, it, it come to a point where the only way they felt that they could win was to silence people who are talking about actual history. Uh, the Biden administration has overturned most of this, but now it's going to the state level and many states are trying to ban critical race theory. And also there are slates of candidates in many school board elections this year who are running on a ban critical race theory platform in very liberal areas of the country because people don't pay attention to their school board elections it's happening on in long island new york (laughs) find out who's running for school board it's happening all over the country even if you think you live in a blue state or a blue city there are people trying to undermine the education that's going on where you live and they're doing it because people don't pay attention to who's running for school board um and we wanted to talk about just encourage people to kind of find out what that is and why it's controversial. Like if you don't know, if you didn't have time to look into the 1619 project, we were doing some research beforehand, Karen. Right. So what's really funny is like critical race theory is such a a jargony term at this point. That's like become such a political catchphrase that if you Google or partisan catchphrase, if you Google critical race theory, all you see is the culture war aspect of it. You don't actually get a lot of good 
reading on what the heck is critical race theory, you know? So Elizabeth and I wanted to really recommend good readings on it. And so what we understand to be kind of foundational works. So it it comes from a, a legal concept of critical legal theory that was adapted into critical race theory. There's a compendium of writings, Kimberly Crenshaw, Neil Gotanda, Gary Peller, and Kendall Thomas had put together a, uh, a, a book of writings called Critical Race Theory, the key writings that form the movement. And so that was one book that we wanted to recommend. There's a, a textbook, Critical Race Theory, that's in its third edition and describes the, the history of the field. Um, and that is by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefancic. I think it's important to just kind of say what the theory are, what the foundational works are, where people can go if they want to really like dig into the academic roots. And I'd also say if you really want like a very quick link to send to your family and friends if they're freaking out about this, uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman has a post on this from May 4th, 2021. Also, if you go, if you go to the Amazon page, it's flooded with negative reviews and one-star reviews including poison in its most deadly form. This is why America's cities are burning. This is racism masked in anti-racism. I mean, racism does have a big role to play in climate change, but I don't think that's what they meant. (laughs) Well, look, when New York City burned down because of the race riots that called themselves anti-race riots, but were actually the real race riots, It was because of this textbook. That's my understanding, according to this reviewer. That you know, all 100... the people who looted Macy's and Herald Square were quoting bell hooks. So I just wait. People looted Macy's. Yeah, I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping my finger on the pulse here. <laughs> No, this was last year during like the, the Black Lives Matter protests. I was at protests, but not in Manhattan. So nowhere near that. Ditto. Yeah. <laughs> Which we can say now, the word has been cleansed. <laughs> Wait, what? You said, I was at protests, just not in Manhattan. And I said, ditto. And then I said, I can say that now. The word has been cleansed because Rush Limbaugh is dead. No, ditto? Oh, okay, so he, people used to call into his show, and instead of having anything to say, like a question or a comment, they'd just be like, ditto, rush, ditto, everything that you said, I say, I believe. And then they started saying mega dittos, like mega, I everything you say, I said. And then they started calling themselves ditto heads, because he speaks for them. Everything Rush says, they say ditto. Kind of ruined a word. We're taking him back. I thought that this had something to do with Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Deep political conversation. That's okay. Can we talk about rapists so, now? Moving from racism to rapism. Let's do it. Use a clarification in terms. When I say rapism, I'm talking about a specific brand of new atheism. Uh, I can't be against new atheists because my husband's a new atheist and he's been on the show when i say married yes and i'm a feminist somehow oh my god 
So anyway, when I say atheism, it's a joke on the Reddit subreddit r slash atheism. And I just pronounce the r, atheism. Something that Adam and I have been talking about is how are we going to talk to our son about religion? How will we answer his questions? What will we say? There are people in our family who are Catholic, who are Jewish, who are Buddhist, who are atheist, who are agnostic, who are Unitarian Universalist. Like, what will we do? And we decided that we'll just tell him the truth, that different people believe different things. And if Catholic family members want to talk to him about what they believe, great. If Jewish family members want to talk to him about what they believe, great. We want him to like learn everything and just have an eclectic understanding that different people believe different things. And when he asks us what we believe, we'll tell him. Um, and I also think that that is very healthy for a child. Uh, it is the way that I grew up, even though I was raised Catholic and both my parents were Catholic and I was sent to Catholic school. We celebrated Jewish holidays with my Jewish family members. I had friends who were Muslim in high school. Like I understood that different people believe different things. And I think that's a very normal, natural and healthy way to live. As an adult who has uh, rejected a lot of traditional religion by becoming a Unitarian Universalist, I believe that traditional religion has a place in a child's education, what it is, what people believe, and how those beliefs and institutions have shaped American history, world history, literature, art, culture, politics, etc. If you don't understand what Christianity is, you can't understand the Trump administration or American fascism. As evidence, go back and listen to our episodes with Catherine Stewart and Kristen Dumay. Kristen Dumay, very exactly. relevant still. Yeah, neither <laughs> of us are Christians in the traditional sense of the word, but it's important to understand these ideas. So, as I said, Unitarian Universalist, the Sunday school teacher at our Unitarian Universalist congregation is both Jewish and atheist. And he did a kid's version of a Seder for my son, which was great. And later he asked us, about Passover. Um, and wait, my, who asked you about Passover? My son, who's four. There were two he's in the story. Sorry, yeah, so no. I just want to clarify. <laughs> Not the Sunday school I'm teacher. He, he knew what Passover is, I would okay. hope. We're, as, and as I discussed in a previous episode, like we're also trying to teach him about his, just teach him about everything. Like their brains are big, they're little sponges, they, they suck up everything. He has um, a kid's biography of Harriet Tubman, the uh, Ordinary People Change the World books by Brad uh, Meltzer, and the Xavier Riddle TV show is based on those books. And in the Harriet Tubman book, it explains that Harriet Tubman was called Moses by the people she helped set free. And so I thought it was good and interesting and important to discuss Passover this year when it happened because he was interested in Harriet Tubman. And when I feel like it's safe to get back on the subway, we're gonna take him up to Harlem to look at the statue. It's gonna be a really interesting way to learn about American history. So he did the kids Seder, he's been learning about Harriet Tubman. And a few days later he said, but why is it called Passover? And what I said was, according to the story, Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said no. So in this story, God did bad things to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians to punish them for being enslavers because slavery is bad. The Jews had a special sign they put on their door so God would pass over their homes and only do bad things to the enslavers and not to harm the slaves. And he was satisfied with that answer. And we continued on with our car ride and it didn't come up. 
expert parenting answer, by the way, like a total Thank parenting you. win. You did Thank not you. get into the violent, gruesome details, but you gave the explanation for the question that was asked to you. Exactly. And I believe that the, the best parts about the Catholicism and the Reformed Judaism of my family's tradition are the parts that are liberatory and the parts that are radical and like liberation theology is fascinating to me. And I think it's interesting to learn about and I think it's really important. And we'll get to that I'm sure as my child grows older. So anyway, my husband wrote a blog post about this and about this exchange just to, because we've, he's been talking on his blog about atheist parenting and what does that mean? And how do you operate in a religious world? It's not as applicable to us in New York City as it is other places, but sometimes things come up. And the responses we got were really weird. Some of them were offended. Some people were really upset that we like even mentioned it. Some people were saying you shouldn't have told your kid about Passover because it's too scary and it's too bloody. And I'm just thinking like, I want my kid to know. Specifically also, you specifically didn't say the scary and bloody part. I know. I, I know. (laughs) And they're like, but don't you know that it didn't actually happen? The Jews weren't really slaves in Egypt, but like, that's not the point. The point, what? (laughs) the point is to underscore the Harriet Tubman story, which is real. And she really was called Moses. And it bothers me, not that people reject religion or that they reject traditional religion, but they reject the idea that we should know about it or think about it or use it to understand politics, history, culture, art, and so on. And someone wrote, I would probably try to find better examples of real slavery and leave Passover as a way to try to justify how loving God is while also saying he killed a lot of children. And I said, answering a four-year-old who asks, why is it called Passover with a way to try and justify how loving God is while also saying he killed a lot of children would seem to alienate him from our Jewish friends and family and is far too cynical a tone to take with a small child. They understand humor, but they don't understand irony at this age. And I said, you know, I'd rather have him come to his own conclusion than mock people. And they're like, well, some people deserve to be mocked. And someone else was just wrote, try explaining <laughs> to a four-year-old that you must kill their beloved pet lambkin so you can sprinkle lambykin's blood all over the doorpost for Passover. God's perfect design, but he cocked up and you must be circumcised. Like, what the fuck are you talking Wait, about? Wait, what? That's, that's the comment there. I'm just reading from the comments. Dunk so on said, him, Elizabeth. Dunk so on him. So I said, if, you, if a four-year-old asks you what Passover is, you would say you must kill your beloved pet lambykin's? Like, that's not even an answer. He doesn't even have a pet lammy kids. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to get you docs. No, no, no. It's fine. I don't. I don't <laughs> but care. he doesn't even have a pet lammy no, kids. No, we don't have a pet lamb. And then someone else said, like, in my opinion, Adam, you could really think again about this. The Passover story should not be seen as interwoven with racial justice in the USA. A white lady said this. And you can think that, but it is. Yeah. I mean, also, like, it's not a connection Adam made any more than I made the attack helicopter joke. Yeah, exactly. It just is. Yes, exactly. The black community in the era of slavery did choose the story as symbolic of their own freedom and white people can't change that. No one can change history. No one can change what oppressed groups of people or any groups of people chose. So Um, wait, then why are you teaching your kid about the enslavement of the Jews? So that he understands real (laughs) Americans. 
Checkmate, Elizabeth. I mean, the same thing happened the other day with regards to a news story about like Joe Biden being denied communion. And when John Kerry was denied communion in 2004, I've written about this extensively on the blog a long time ago, which was when I left the Catholic Church, because I felt like if they were going to turn the Eucharist into a weapon, I didn't want to be there. I felt that that was like hypocritical and cruel. And I felt like if they were going after pro-choice politicians, they'd just be going after regular pro-choice parishioners next. So there's a news story about it. And someone wrote on Twitter, I don't understand communion, but if they can deny someone of it, they must not be necessary, right? And I said, no, it's the opposite. It's a very important spiritual practice. And it's been weaponized this way for a long time. And that's why I left the church. So someone else pipes up with the same kind of atheism. No, it's a hangover from pagan rituals. And I said, but that doesn't take away the spiritual significance. And he said, well, it's not, it's not real. It's just a belief. It's fake. It's fake. But the point isn't whether transubstantiation is factually true. My point is, is that it's spiritually and emotionally significant to people. And the church sets up people to have these spiritual and emotional beliefs about a certain practice and then denies it to them when they step out of line. And that is toxic and abusive and cruel. That's my point. You can't respond to that by saying, well, they should never have believed that in the first place. Like, you're an <laughs> idiot. That's my problem with atheism. It's so funny because I feel like there's a part of me that is like, is this developmentally necessary to go through this horrible asshole phase when you are babby anything? Like, with all babby atheists, are they all atheists? And then some people just get stuck there? Like Richard Dawkins? My, think, my cat wants to be on the podcast. Hi, cat. I think that's everything that we wanted to say. And apologies, this episode is late. But we hope that you are well and that you donate to abortion funds if you can. And also our Patreon. <laughs> so you can find me online at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. And you can find me at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And we'll see y'all later. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.